I think our message is a message of love. It's a message of inclusion. It's a message of come and enjoy the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has been restored to the earth, to the prophet Joseph Smith and those who have succeeded him in this sacred calling as apostles and prophets that I know that Jesus Christ is the Savior and the Redeemer of the world. And this is His church, and He presides over it, and we move about doing our work at His direction. I'm Sarah Jane Weaver, editor of The Church News. Welcome to The Church News Podcast. We are taking you on a journey of connection as we discuss news and events of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. On July 22, 1997, a pioneer trek reenactment honoring early members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, 150 years after their arrival in the Salt Lake Valley, reached This is the Place Heritage Park. President M. Russell Ballard, now acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, was there, watching as handcarts and wagons entered the valley. At the time, President Ballard was serving as chairman of the church's sesquicentennial committee. He emphasized that the sesquicentennial was about more than wagon trains. It was an opportunity to tell the world the story of the Restoration. That opportunity continues 25 years later, as the church marks the 175th anniversary of the pioneers entering the valley. It was a journey then that required faith in every footstep, just as living the gospel requires faith in every footstep now. To talk about pioneering today, President Ballard joins this episode of the Church News Podcast, along with guest host Sister Sherry Dew, Executive Vice President of Deseret Management Corporation and a former member of the Relief Society General Presidency. President, I was in your office one day when you were reflecting about the assignment you received to chair the sesquicentennial events and all the different things that were done to celebrate the sesquicentennial of the church, including the writing of a new song, Faith in Every Footstep. Mm-hmm. Let's just dive right into this question about the sesquicentennial and tell me what were the high points for you And I really want to hear about that song. Well, I think the 150th year celebration of the pioneers coming into the valley was deserved a tremendous Mm -hmm. celebration. And I don't know why President Ankley assigned me to be the chairman, but he did. And we had a tremendous committee, and we did a lot of very interesting things. We had hand carts coming across uh, the plains. We had uh, wagons and sitting up there at the monument, the First uh-huh. Presidency and the Twelve, and, and then came uh, the hand carts and tears appeared it was in everybody's eyes. Yeah. Uh, it, was a, it was a real celebration. And then, of course, we had a tremendous... Uh, celebration down at the Brigham Young University uh, Stadium. I think we did that two nights, as I remember, Friday night and a Saturday night. And uh, 150 years since 
our forefathers, and some of those were mine, Mm -hmm. my great-grandfathers, walked the good portion of the plains and walked into the valley. In fact, Henry Ballard, who would be my great-grandfather, hid himself up in the canyon, and then at night he saw lights on in a cabin, and he went over and begged for some clothes because the clothes that he had were not appropriately covering him. He had herded sheep for Lorenzo Snow's family across mm-hmm. the plain. So he so he, he was, he was in bad shape. Yeah. <laughs> and they gave him some clothing, and then in his journal he writes the next morning mm. the, the happiest day of his life was when he walked in. Mm to the Salt Lake Valley. So when you read those kinds of uh, stories from your forefathers who made the journey uh, that makes the sesquicentennial 150 years real, mm-hmm. and I, that's what we tried to do, really, is to get people to think about the price that has been paid by our forefathers, the forefathers of the founders of this part of the world. I think it worked. I remember so many things that were done that touched me very deeply. Now, the song, Faith in Every Footstep, how did that come about? Well, Newell Daly was on our committee. Okay. And I said, Newell, we need a song. We didn't know what it would be. Mm -hmm. I think Faith in Every Footstep was born by... Newell Daly as he prepared that song. So then it became adopted as the theme of the sesquicentennial celebration. So when I think about that song and how it emerged from all the work that you and your committee did, it seems interesting to me because I think we can apply everything that song stands for to your life. When I look at the different things that have happened to you in your life, it feels like your life is an example of faith in every footstep. So let me just ask you an overarching question, and that is, where did you find your faith in Jesus Christ and his gospel, and how have you sustained it? I think it was really real to me on my mission. I knew the church was true. I went to church. My parents were not uh, fully active in those, my days when I was growing up. But uh, when I was a missionary, I was assigned to serve in Nottingham, England. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was later made the district president of the Nottingham, England district. And uh, we used to hold street meetings down in the market square in Nottingham every day, noon and in the evenings. And for some reason, I didn't have a companion because there was a, we didn't have the right number. It was an odd number. The one that would be without a companion for a day or two would be the district president. Mm-hmm. And this was the case with me. Mm-hmm. We'd held this wonderful street meeting Sunday night 
And I'm now walking back to what we called our digs along the side of the Trent River. Okay. And as I went along that uh, walking side the, the river, about just almost sunset, and it hit me that the Lord Jesus Christ knew me. I didn't have a revelation. I didn't see anything. But I knew. I knew that he knew. And he loved me for what I was trying to do as a boy uh-huh. missionary. And that established a sense of faith, I think, in my future footsteps. I learned a lot about defending the Lord Jesus Christ as a missionary. We used to have street meetings all of the time. And when you defend the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you're defending the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And as I've learned to do that, that's really one of the most crowning, most fulfilling experiences of my life, to be able to witness and testify that I know that Jesus Christ is the Savior and the Redeemer of the world. And this is his church, and he presides over it, and we move about doing our work at his direction. Now, that's a wonderful thing to know, and I was uh, blessed, Sherry, to learn and have a little of that kind of an experience as a boy, a missionary in, mm-hmm. in Nottingham, England, uh, you know, in 1948. So. And it's built from there. It's just built from there. Well, it's built from there, and I think some of those experiences I had as a missionary, like the experience along the Trent River, it made it easier for me to witness and testify of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ because I felt like I knew him. I never saw, I never had visions, and I never heard voices, but I knew. And it was real. It It became real. real. Yeah. It became more real as I received more and more responsibility. I became a district president of the Nottingham District, and then I became a counselor to uh, President Selvoy J. Boyer of the British Mission. That was all England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. And when President Boyer went home, I became a counselor to President Stainer Richards. And my mission was supposed to be over in May, and President Richards said, no, you go home and school starts in September. So I'd, I had a two-and-a-half-year British mission. And what a wonderful learning experience it was. A turning point, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, a turning point. Well, I said, President Richards, all of the missionaries that I came over with were going to tour Europe, and I've got all those arrangements to tour Europe for 10 days before we go home. And uh, because I was getting home in May, and uh, the president said, well, just go with them and then come back. (laughs) So I'm probably one of the few... (laughs) Missionaries that had a, about a seven-day vacation touring Europe, and then I came back and I took all my missionary companions I came over with, 
down to Southampton, put them on the ship to send them home, and then I went back and worked, and worked several for another months. six months. Now I came home two days, three days before uh, school started in September. Well, we did things a little differently then than we do them today, <laughs> I suppose. You know what's curious to me, President, is that you have a stunning pedigree and heritage in the church. Great-great-grandson of Hiram Smith. Grandson of two apostles. And yet, as you already expressed, your parents were somewhat active. Mm-hmm. At what point did it hit you that you had this remarkable heritage, and what impact did that have on you when it did hit you? Probably, primarily, to be honest with you, Sherry, when I got called to be a 70. Hmm. Now, I was called to be a bishop, and uh, I served as a bishop for six years in one ward and for two years in another ward, and I served on high councils, and uh, I served as a mission president for uh, three years in Toronto. Toronto with Barbara. But it really didn't impact like it did when I was called to be a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. And one of those very cherished, special, impactful moments was when President Hankley called me Sunday morning, about 7.30 in the morning, he said, are you out of the shower yet? And I said, oh, yeah, sure, President. We're ready to come to church. And he said, well, come to my office at 9 o'clock, Sunday morning of General Conference. So Barb and I arrived there, and I, all the way from where we lived up in uh, on 13th South, I said, Barbara, we're going to be assigned to serve out somewhere in the world, so get ready for it. That's what this is about, because that's when they were mm-hmm. sending general authorities out to preside over mm-hmm. areas. Of course. The so I went in and sat down uh, with the president, and he uh, said, I just left President Kimball, who was at that time and uh, not really uh, robust, mm-hmm. but uh, living in the Hotel Utah, and he has authorized me to extend a call to you to serve in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Well, I started to weep, and he started to weep, and he embraced me. I can still feel Gordon B. Hinckley's arms around me. And that was a very special experience. That was on a Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon. I was sustained... And then I've tried to live the way I'm supposed to live all these years. It's a long time. I think I'm 46 years now as a general authority, maybe more than that. 1976, when I was called as a 70. And I was serving as a mission president when I was called. Thank you for sharing that. President, there are so few men in this dispensation who have had that treasured experience of being called as a prophet, seer, and revelator, it's almost impossible for the rest of us to imagine what that felt like for you and for Sister Ballard. Well, you've said it. And then I sat in the first chair and looked around the circle 
to the other 11 apostles, uh, Sherry, I don't know how many times the thought has coursed through my mind, how did this happen? <laughs> what are you doing here? And then the question, am I doing everything that the Lord wants me to do? So I've tried really hard to uh, think through what would the Lord want me to do. This is his church. We work um, very closely together as the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency. But many, many, many times in my life and in my ministry, I've been in a situation where I have had to pause and maybe even excuse myself to find a quiet place where I could think through and inquire of the Lord. What would you have me do here? And I fortunately can witness that he lives and that the power of the Holy Ghost is sent to reveal what you do and what you say in those moments when it's way beyond your own personal capacity. You know, I've just been thinking as you've been sharing your reflections from your point of view and without overstating anything at all, I would just say that one of the great privileges of my life has been from time to time being invited to work on projects that you were overseeing. And I've watched you move and shake a lot of things from church headquarters that needed a champion, needed vision, needed energy. One of the things I've witnessed is the way you have championed the voices of women in the church. I've been listening to you talk about the importance of women in councils since I was a child, practically. (laughs) And would you say something about that? Where does that understanding and that vision come from? Is it being married to the marvelous Barbara Bowen and, and seeing, learning from her? What gave you a sensitivity to the importance of the voice of women? Well, I like to say that women are a vital voice in the leadership councils of the church. I don't know how a bishop can uh, be able to administer a ward and meet the needs of the members of his ward without the input of the dear sisters that are presiding over the Relief Society, the young women, and the primary. Now, as a bishop, I listened and I had great respect for the sisters that were sitting in our ward council because many, many times they had an insight far more accurate than the brethren. And I think it's women have a instinctive, you're born with a sense of there's a need or something needs attention that men don't have. 
And so, or that's different from men. Different, At the very least, it's different from men. Well, it's, yeah, different than men. So, <clears throat> so, to me, I've been an advocate all my time as a general authority that the priesthood leaders ought to help call capable, good, smart women, faithful women to lead the auxiliaries of the church, and then they ought to be a full and participating part of a ward council. And the reason for that is that the voice of women in the ward council many, many times is the most important voice that a bishop can hear. And uh, I would say to any bishop who would be listening to this, honor the sisters that are presiding over your auxiliaries and include them in your council meetings and look to them for counsel on matters that uh, they will have answers that will be far better than than the elders quorum president will have <laughs> or the brethren will have. So, I, Sherry, I've been an advocate, a great advocate of the role and the contribution that women of the church make every day in the wards and the stakes and, most importantly, in the homes where many of them serve as mothers or heads of households. And um, the Lord blessed the world with mothers and with, mm-hmm. and with sisters, good women who were willing to take responsibility of uh, helping the church move forward. So I'm grateful that we have the dear sisters in the church to help us try to do what the Lord wants us to do. And you had personally such a magnificent woman at your side. She still is at your side. She's just (laughs) stepped across the veil earlier. Tell us about the influence of, of Sister Ballard. I have to say, I've been in the same room with Sister Ballard. It's got to be several hundred times. She lit up a room. She had a sense of happiness and just warmth that lit up her room. How would you describe her influence on you? Well, I'd say it was pretty hard sometimes to live with somebody that was almost angelic. (laughs) (laughs) No one in our family, we have seven children, and we have 43 grandchildren, Not one of them have ever heard their mother or their grandmother raise her voice. So, amazing. It's pretty. It's pretty hard to live with somebody that is. uh, Well, it's not hard to live, but it's amazing to live with someone who's. You've never heard her, her get mad. You never heard her raise her voice. Uh, She won her way, and she did really good at it with a smile. And uh, sometimes (laughs) when the children were needing a little direction, uh, just her countenance would cause them to start to want to repent. (laughs) Hmm. 
and want to do what uh, what they ought to do, the right thing they ought to do. She was a she is a remarkable, remarkable mother and grandmother, and I miss her terribly. Let's go back to something you were saying a minute ago when we were talking about what happened to you on your mission, the impact the mission had on you. As I've watched your life unfold, I have wondered, is the remarkable missionary zeal that you have, and everybody who knows you knows that that's true, they know you are an amazing missionary. I was part of a media team. I think Sarah Weaver was with We were on the same media team when we were with you in Sharon, Vermont. And several of us were standing kind of back in the hotel lobby as you came to check out of your room. And we watched you with the woman checking you out of your room. And I thought, how does he do that? In about 30 seconds, you had engaged her in a conversation about the church and had promised to send her a copy of your book, Our Search for Happiness, and whatever else you were going to send her. And I remember thinking, that was so effortless. It was so natural. So where did that come from? How did you learn to do that? Was that cultivated? Is it just instinctive? Or was it cultivated on your mission? Or all of the above? Because your deep desire to share the gospel, and then your ability to do it, are astonishing to me. Well, I think my mission, of course, had a tremendous impact on me, and I had the wonderful opportunity of serving very close to two wonderful mission presidents as their counselor. But I will use an example. I was the bishop of LeGrand Richards. Hmm. And LeGrand Richards... Amazing was uh, probably the most uh, powerful missionary that I had ever been close to. And I traveled with him uh, several places. For example, we would sit down in a waiting room, waiting to board the airplane, and somebody would sit across the way, and immediately he would be engaging them in what church do you belong to? I remember one case, and the woman, three little kids sitting with her, and, and she said, well, we're Lutherans. And he said, oh, well, that's too bad. Let me tell you why. <laughs> Let me tell you why you ought to know something about the restoration of the gospel. And then bingo, the next 15, 20 minutes, he's teaching the message of the restoration. And I was his bishop, for a season, and so I learned a lot about being bold and open and with a smile on your face and being direct uh, in declaring what we know to be true. Elder Richards, uh, one day we were on the plane and we were flying uh, back east together to conduct some conferences, and he said to me, It was after his wife died. He said, uh, Elder Ballard, I worry when I die whether I'm going to be able to find mommy, that was his wife, Mm -hmm. when I get over there. And I said, Elder Richards, in your case, it could be a real problem. 
and I can still feel his hand <laughs> on my knee as he said, what do you mean by that, my boy? I said, Elder Richards, when you die, there'll be so many people that will come to you and thank you for your testimony, for your converting them to the true church, a marvelous work and a wonder, and all the things you have done to bring the gospel into their lives. There'll be a big crowd, and you might have a hard time finding mommy in the crowd. Well, he, of course, said, ah, you don't mean that. And I said, yeah, well, yes, I do. <laughs> I think that's what we need to think a little bit about. I hope that uh, when the time comes that I go from there to the next uh, next experience, that there'll be some people there that uh, will have appreciated my effort to try to share the gospel with them and help them uh, receive their ordinances and covenants on this side of the veil. I think we could absolutely say the same thing to you that you said to really your mentor, Elder LeGrand Richards. I'm not sure I ever realized the connection there. So you watched in action how you do it. I was and, his bishop. So. Yeah. I mean, that makes all the difference mm. to see how it's mm. done. Now, you had a leading guiding hand in Preach My Gospel. Tell us anything that you feel it's appropriate to share about how that came about. Well, when I was executive director, head of the missionary department, we were wanting to try to uh, get a better plan, a better way for the missionaries to present the gospel all over the world. And so we held a lot of meetings, a lot of council meetings, and we concluded that uh, what they really needed is something that would give them the guidelines of how to be a good missionary, uh, how to teach, and what to teach, and so forth. So in the council was born the idea that we prepare a Preach My Gospel booklet that missionaries could have and could learn some fundamentals that would help them to be more effective. And uh, with the great work of a lot of people, I think Preach My Gospel is one of the uh, truly great manuals that's ever mm -hmm. been produced in the church, and it still fulfills a very important role how would you, even today. How would you describe what impact it has had? Like, it feels like it's fundamentally changed well, the way we well, the impact missionary. it has had is, is that instead of missionaries sitting in their apartment wondering, well, what will we study and what will we do and how will we approach and what is our next steps, they preach my gospel answers all that for them, including chapter 3 that teaches them simple principles to introduce the gospel to a total stranger mm -hmm. in terms that are simple and easily understood. And I think Preach My Gospel has been a tremendous resource and help to the missionary cause of the church. And certainly to new missionaries, they love it because it, it gives them a better foundation platform to start from. Plus, I would add that several years ago, and in fact I've done this more than once, 
I thought, okay, I'm going to use that for my manual, for my own study for the next few months. And just, it's a great foundation. Okay, let's... I have to just tell you about that manual came from heaven because it came together so fast and with approval that was unbelievable. You know, to get a manual approved through all of the steps we have here at the church takes can take years. That one was within eight or nine months. So when we think about that, and we're talking here about missionary work, you've mentioned earlier learning to defend the church. Teaching the gospel today and defending the church when necessary is no longer for the faint of heart. It's getting more difficult, more challenging in a world that is more openly opposing of religion in general. And then, of course, we have our own attacks that can come and concerns expressed by others. What have you learned about dealing with opposition, verbal opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ? What have you learned about handling that? Well, be kind. Keep a smile on your face and maintain a conversation in such a way as you bring it around to where you have an opportunity to explain our position as to what we believe has occurred through Joseph Smith kneeling in a grove of trees. That's what needs to happen. My experience is when we introduce as quickly as we can the reality of Joseph Smith's story and the evidence that his story is true because of the Book of Mormon and what the Book of Mormon is. The Book of Mormon is, to me, the greatest evidence that Joseph is a prophet. And when that is used properly in combination by missionaries or members, it's not that I want to convince you of something I know. It's I want to show you what has happened and how God has reestablished through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, prophets, seers, and revelators, the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the evidence that Joseph is a prophet and the gospel's been restored, one of the great evidences is the Book of Mormon. I mean, we have such a powerful story. And to me, it's the most exciting story you can possibly talk about. I'd love to do it. And I have to say that I'm pretty bold at it. And I've never been criticized or had anybody get angry at me for trying to share with them something that I felt they needed to know. I've thought that in addition to making it comfortable and natural for you to just share what you know and what you know will bless lives, that it's made it easy for you, or maybe easier, to interact with other major religious figures. For example, you were the junior companion, if you will, to President Nelson when you went in and met with Pope Francis. 
What was that experience like? Well, well, that was a great experience, and uh, he's a nice man, and it was very formal. And uh, but the exciting times for me is the uh, opportunities I've had of working with bishops of the Catholic Church right here in the Diocese of Salt mm-hmm. Lake City. I'm pretty good friends. I've always been good friends with the Catholic bishops because I think that friendship is a very, very important factor where ultimately sometime, some way, somebody who are not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints may say, you know, I need to know a little bit more about this. Uh, it's what people feel, uh, Sherry, in relationships that's more important than what they hear or what we say in many cases. So if I am visiting with someone and I can cause them to feel that I really love them, the church loves them, and this is something important, they can feel that, they're more likely to want to know more about it than if I just try to do it by the book. With that in mind, some of our youth today and young adults express concern when they have family members or friends who have stepped away from the church and they don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to feel. If you were sitting with a group in this room of young adults and, and teenagers talking to them about that, how would you counsel them to respond to their friends or family members who have stepped away for a time? There's probably several ways, but I've often said to people who are drifting or who are uh, not interested or who are not even members of the church, Sherry, the day's going to come and you're going to die. You can't avoid that. Can't escape it. It's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to happen. To all of us. Everybody. So, is there an accountability in this life for the way we live? Are we going to have an accountability of some kind when we get on the other side? One of the great blessings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is, is that it is revealed truth that has come through a prophet of God, and it has the teachings, covenants, and commandments that help our Heavenly Father's children prepare for that day. And we teach those principles that help people to be good, to be nice, to strive to be uh, righteous in their behaviors and uh, in their relationship with their neighbors. Ultimately, those attributes will be very, very helpful as you get older. And then I think when we pass through the veil, the people that we've been able to touch through our kindness, through our teaching, through our smiles, through our love, we may be surprised how many will be there to say thank you. Mm -hmm. 
you've been serving now as the acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles since 2018. What have you learned leading the Quorum that maybe you didn't know before you were leading the Quorum? Have there been new insights? Well, one thing for sure is that uh, amazed at the power and the goodness and the spiritual insight that those 11 apostles have is overwhelming. And when we are in council, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, I can say to you the church is secure and always will be secure because the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the three apostles who make up the First Presidency 15 apostles will always guide this church in the direction it should go. A familiar phrase that we sometimes hear is, well, these men in the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve are old. They're out of touch. How would you respond to that? I'll, I'll tell you, we're not living in a bubble we probably know as much about what's going on in the world as any 15 men alive in a group. In fact, uh, on one occasion, a president of the United States visited us. I'll leave I'm named, but I heard what he said to the press when he stepped out on the front stairs to leave the church office building. Mr. President, what have you been doing here? And he said, I've been listening to the, the 15 most informed men about the world that there is. And why would he say that? Because we were in council with the President of the United States, and we were telling him and answering questions about things that are going on every corner of the earth. Fifteen. We've got our arms around the world, and how do we do that? Because we have mission presidents, we have stake presidents, we have bishops, we have church organization, the priesthood authority and power, and these wonderful women that support them. And so we know, because our people are everywhere, what's happening in the world. And in the case of this president, I'll name unnamed, his comment was the foot on the stairs of the church office when he, to the press, I've been with the 15 most informed men in America because we were able to tell him things that the State Department doesn't know because they don't have, we have what, 60,000, 70,000 full-time missionaries serving in every corner of the earth. We have uh, stakes, we have wards, we have corms, we have priesthood, we have sisters, and they're living with the people. And so what's happening in the lives of people, we have an insight to because of the beautiful doctrine that we all strive to receive and the teachings of God that we try to live. And therefore, 
I think it's it's a remarkable, remarkable thing to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President, could we just invite you now to conclude by sharing with us your testimony? Well, my testimony is uh, very secure and real. It has come in my life not as one incident, but it has come as I have served, as I have studied, as I have prayed, as I have moved about the earth, meeting with our Heavenly Father's children. And when I do have had that privilege, I've always come away from those experiences, whether it's in Africa or it's in Asia or wherever in the world. I've always come back home and thought to myself, how blessed are we to know that a boy went into the grove of trees near his farm home in 1820 and knelt wanting to know from God how he could have his sins forgiven. And we witnessed to the world that in answer to that prayer, the Father God, our eternal Father, and His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, appeared to Him and spoke to Him. In fact, Jesus Christ said, Joseph, called Him by name. And that was the opening of the restoration of the fullness of the everlasting gospel in this, the last dispensation of time. And from that experience with Joseph Smith, the Lord took that boy and made a prophet out of him. And through him was restored the fullness of the gospel Blessings of the holy priesthood came at the Lord's direction by John the Baptist for the Aaronic priesthood and Peter, James, and John for the Melchizedek priesthood. When we tell the world that they came and laid their hands on the head of Joseph Smith, we believe that. We witness and testify. That is what happened. There can be those who say, well, we don't believe that those kinds of things can happen. Well, they have their right to believe what they choose. But we know that the fullness of the priesthood was restored under the hands of Peter, James, and John. And so that the fullness of the gospel is once again upon the earth. And that we have today directing the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, apostles, ordained apostles with the same authority and capacity as the apostles that Jesus himself set apart in the, his day. So 
I think our message is a message of love. It's a message of inclusion. It's a message of come and enjoy the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has been restored to the earth, to the prophet Joseph Smith, and those who have succeeded him in this sacred calling as apostles and prophets. This is a great thing we have, and one of the wonderful witnesses we have that our message is true is the Book of Mormon. So we say to the world, let us give you a copy of the Book of Mormon, another testament that Jesus is the Christ, translated by the gift and power of God by Joseph Smith from ancient records, the story of God's dealings with his family and children and the Americas and the Western Hemisphere. And so we have the Book of Mormon and we have the Bible and they stand side by side now as scripture which is filled with guidance and direction on how to find peace, joy, and happiness in one's life. And it's wonderful. And it's true. You have been listening to the Church News Podcast. I'm your host, Church News Editor Sarah Jane Weaver. I hope you have learned something today about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints by peering with me through the Church News window. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. And if you enjoyed the messages we shared today, please make sure you share the podcast with others. Thanks to our guests, to my producer, Kellyanne Halverson, and others who make this podcast possible. Join us every week for a new episode. Find us on your favorite podcasting channel or with other news and updates about the church on thechurchnews.com.